during that wait, I suffered a lot of pain because all I could remember was Kevin Sullivan beating on me and I was seeing him through a film of my own blood. And when the surgeon got here and sewed me up, he told me that despite everything he could do, I'm going to have a scar here. And that means that every time I look in the mirror, when I'm shaving for the rest of my life, I'm going to see a scar and I'm going to think of Kevin Sullivan. And that's the last memory I have of him is him pounding on me and I cannot go to my grave with that memory in my mind. The memory I want in my mind of Kevin Sullivan, when I see this scar and I think of Kevin Sullivan, I want the memory of him where he is both physically and emotionally and mentally a broken man. I don't want to just break his arms and his legs. I want to break his heart and I want to warp his mind. He hit me with his best shot and he busted me open, but he didn't even knock me down or knock me out. Well, Sullivan, if your friends hadn't come down here and pulled me off you, I would have beat you and finished it right there. I want a match with you that will finish it once and for all till the best man wins. I quit Texas death. I don't care what kind of match it is until one man cannot continue because you and I both know in that last 30 seconds we were alone, you and I both know that I was the better man. Welcome back to the Wrestling Stoop with the legend himself, Bob Roop. And I'm your co-host, Ray Russell, along for the ride here on the program. And this week, we continue on with the story of Bob's time in the San Francisco Territory, big-time wrestling, back in 1977. We've already set the stage. We talked about how Bob became the booker of the promotion. Last week, we began to touch on his feud with Kevin Sullivan. And boy, do we have a long way to go there. Bob's innovative booking style, by all accounts, was not a fan by all. Some simply didn't like change, but the gates, the ticket sales, the house records, they don't lie. Bob bringing the territory from down around 4,000 fans at the Cow Palace up to over 8,100 by July of 1977, and then just a month later, and for the duration of the year that Kevin Sullivan-Bob Roop feud, going to bring in somewhere around 12,000 fans each and every month. And we're going to continue on this week with part three as we continue to look at that Kevin Sullivan-Bob Roop feud. Bob wishes to share a story about journeyman wrestler Pat McGinnis. And who knows what other twists and turns we may take here this week on the program. So stay tuned. But first, just a friendly reminder, guys, that you can listen to the Wrestling Stoop with Bob Roop as well as sister shows like the Wrestling Memory Grenade currently covering the 1988 and the WWF Project. You can also listen to the Regional Wrestling Podcast, where we talk the territories. Currently have three projects going on right now with Regional Wrestling, including 1981 Georgia Championship Wrestling with guest Jamie Ward. It's Bill Watts' UWF in 1986 with guest co-host Roman Gomez. And we just started it off, Memphis 1985. We kicked that project off with guest Steve Crawford. And Gene Jackson also going to be thrown into that mix as well on upcoming episodes, so you want to be along for that one. And you guys can listen to all of those shows and more as part of the WrestleCopia podcast network located over at WrestleCopia.com. That's WrestleCopia.com and anywhere 
Your podcast streaming needs are met from Apple to Spotify, Google, and beyond. And hey, guys, how about that social media? Why don't you guys go and friend Bob Roop over on Facebook? You can find him there at facebook.com slash poor Bob Roop. Bob would love to have you as a friend, hear from you, and, and you guys can read his daily anecdotes. Lots of life lessons to be learned. And you guys can, of course, follow me, Ray Russell. You can follow me on X, formerly Twitter. You can follow me there at Rasslin Grenade. That's at R-A-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. Also, follow and like me, Facebook.com slash Rasslin Grenade. And of course, you guys can subscribe to my YouTube channel, guys. YouTube.com slash Rasslin Grenade. Actually, just added six new videos, all from 1977, Big Time Wrestling, the San Francisco Territory, covering a lot of the innovative feuds going on right now via Booker Bob Roop. Some of the angles we already discussed, Pepper Gomez and the ladder, Alexi Smirnoff and Dean Ho and the ukulele. You guys can go check those out right now at my YouTube channel. Also, three parts to the Kevin Sullivan Bob Roop feud added. You can find those all at youtube.com slash wrestling grenade. Subscribe today. And last but certainly not least, a very important message, especially this time of year. I encourage everybody to head on over to patreon.com slash wrestlecopia. That address again, patreon.com slash wrestlecopia. And I'm simply talking to you guys about that $5 all access tier. Get you all sorts of gifts for just five bucks, including all of my insanely detailed book-like show notes, pages and pages of show notes for every episode of The Grenade Show, Monday Warfare, and the Regional Wrestling Podcast. You'll also get early access to many of the podcasts here on WrestleCopia, where you can listen days and sometimes as much as a week earlier than the rest of the listeners, plus remastered versions of the earliest episodes of The Grenade Show covering the 1989 NWA project. Includes enhanced sound quality, plus new content and conversation never heard before. But that's still not all. You also get digital downloads for your viewing and reading pleasure. Just dropped somewhere around 10 to 12 new digital downloads in the past few days and another dozen or so coming heading into the holidays. So now is a great time to jump on board for the digital downloads. But that's still not it, guys. You also get the Patreon-exclusive Watch Along series covering many past WWF and WCW events. And you get all of that for the low, low price of just five dollars no subscription cancel anytime please show your support give it a try for a month i think you'll like the content that we offer and every penny of it goes right back here into paying the bills at the russell copia podcast network so please guys if you have a few bucks to spare you're looking to support that next up-and-coming wrestling podcast brand please consider making it russell copia as i continue to try to bring everybody both information and entertainment and speaking of information and entertainment, it's time to bring the man on himself. Wait no longer. Welcome him back to his own program, Mr. Bob Root. And Bob, it is always a pleasure to record an episode of The Wrestling Stoop alongside you. Same back at you, Ray. I'm having a lot of good, a lot of fun with this. Uh, bringing back uh, memories, good times. And the bad ones, I just put those back down. I, I leave those back alongside memory, uh, memory lane uh, and just focus on the good thing. Yeah, just discard those in the garbage can of life because we've got so many great stories going on. We have gotten so much great feedback from all of the shows, but more specifically from West Coasters. Over the last couple of shows we've done with San Francisco, lots of Bay Area fans who grew up on this stuff. They remember this stuff, Bob, and uh, you, you, we're bringing back memories for them. And they're really enjoying this. So I'm just happy that, you know, this is a topic we chose to do. And I thought it was initially going to be a three-parter in and out. 
uh, basically different you know sections of your career there, how you became Booker, then your your feud with Kevin Sullivan, and then you know close up shop and talk about the falling out there with Roy Shire. But there's just a whole lot more to this than I realized. Well, you know, you got a point. And going back to um, the feedback, think about all the conventions they've been having now for years. And I mean, not just recently, but going back, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 years. Sure. That are reunions of fans who want to come back and talk to the wrestlers who thrilled them when, you know, when they were, a lot of the guys were retired that, that would come and the fans would get a chance to interact with them. And I know the ones they did in Charlotte, I think, Ole Anderson and uh, Scott Teal, uh, I was working with Scott on my own book, and he had written uh, Ole Anderson's book, and uh, they went to, now Ole was really big in the Carolinas, so they went to one of the first uh, conventions in Charlotte, and uh, Scott was saying that he sold 300 books, uh, and he wished he'd, he'd had more because he, he could have sold them. And that's, you know, to sell 300 books, uh, any I don't care who you are, if you're a top-of-the-line author, writer uh, to be able to sell 300 books like at one one show like going to a bookstore in boston say and uh, have you know usually can't get 300 people in there but to have uh, to be able to sell that many books at one go is, is a good day so to have it happen for a wrestler uh just unheard of you know and when scott told me those numbers but of course now he was there for i don't know 10 years or whatever and he he was really over there so i'm not surprised but uh, yeah, those conventions and the one I went to this past year, again, at Charlotte, the same thing. There are people there that remembered when and uh, that's what they want to talk about was back when. So uh, yeah, that was what we're doing. Isn't it? So onward. Well, I had a, a listener send in a message talking about back when. He actually wanted to, I don't want to say he wanted to correct this, but he wanted to make this known just because he wanted to give props to the late, great Alexis Smirnoff here. He says that the initial idea for the ukulele smashing may have originated from Smirnoff, because Smirnoff, I guess, had participated in two different guitar smashing gimmicks, uh, similar but not the same as uh, there in San Francisco. I guess he did it up in the Maritimes for the K Brothers, and he did it in the Carolinas as well. And I guess the, basically the story is that uh, it was Dubois, or a.k.a. Alexis Smirnoff, smashing guitars in both instances. Now... Jerome McDonald, the listener, also said at the same time, he's not trying to take away from you. He's not trying to discredit you at all because you were the booker in San Francisco and you did put your own spin on it. Obviously, the guitar became a ukulele and rather than smashing it against a ring post, you smashed it over somebody's head. So, you know, you changed it up a little bit there. But Jerome thinks that we should give Smirnoff likely he should give a little credit too. maybe he brought the, the idea to you and you kind of altered it and made it, you know, into your own, innovated it into something even maybe bigger than it was in these other areas. You know, that's a, uh, in fact, that's not just a strong possibility. That's maybe what happened because I don't know. I don't know if I see that coming from my own background or repertoire of okay. what I, cause I was fairly young as a, certainly as a booker. I mean, my first full-time job and I don't remember doing anything like that in the past. So it very well could have come from, uh, from Smirnoff and, you know, my job, again, was to come out there with a product and wherever it came from. Uh, the great shows we did in uh, Ron Fuller's territory had Malenko, uh, the professor, and Ronnie Garvin as a brain trust. And, you know, if we had a, the stuff that went on the show, probably 60 or 70 percent of it was from them. 
most of our angle stuff came from them. But again, I had the ingredient that I brought to it was the ability to put it out there. That's what you call the office hold. And I always talk to people about, you know, wrestlers who want to talk about, yeah, I could do this, I could do that. Unless you have the office hold, that means that you either can demand or you, you have a way, you do, you're the booker, you can do it yourself. Dusty Rhodes had it in Florida. Uh, Dusty was able to promote himself. I think we talked about this. But, you know, he was such a cash cow for him that whatever he wanted to do, they were going to go along with because otherwise he could take his, you know, he could pack up his banjo and leave and uh, go somewhere else and do it. So, yeah, what I brought to the uh, the fan that wrote in, mm-hmm. you, uh, thank you for the correction because I don't want to take any credit. I have no idea where it came from. But now that he's, he's mentioned Smirnoff doing that angle, Logically, because Alex and I were close, you know, we were now once I became Booker, we weren't as close as we had been. But because I couldn't but you had to separate. We talked about this. You right. had to put a little little space between you. But uh, he, I'm sure he felt would feel free to come to me with uh, with the idea. One way that we might be able to find out is I don't know what we did with Smirnoff and Dean Ho before that, the ukulele. That was, because, I believe, if I remember correctly, that was the, the, that's what started the feud because you had to do it all at once. Probably was uh, Smirnoff's idea because that that's a way that would guarantee that it would, you know, it would be hot. Right. Uh, we had to do that. We talked about it last week, doing with Sullivan. He just shows up and, you know, he wrestles once or twice and, and then he's on TV and he's there on a quest. He's there to get me and that immediately... That brings him into another league. The fact that I recognize that he's there for me, and I, I've been there for a while. I've gotten over, and you know I'm a, a main event guy, and so, or at least I'm in a top tier. Let's put it that way. Now that the fact this guy that just came in there uh, is calling my name, if I didn't respond, then it wouldn't mean anything. But I respond to it, and that immediately gets him over. If I consider him a foe someone I need to worry about or be or at least think about, then the fans will too. And that's what we did with him. Well, back to the ukulele, that was a perfect way. To, you know, what it does, it makes it personal. You got a person. It's not just like, oh, I'm trying to be the best. I were wrestling for the belt. No, you you broke my grandmother's 200-year-old ukulele, and, you know, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to take it out of your butt. So people can get with that. And uh, so, uh Thank you to what was the name of the the fan that wrote in about that? Jerome McDonald. Jerome, if you're listening, thank you for that. Uh, I'm always glad to be to be updated. So thanks for updating us on that because I don't want to I don't want to take credit for anything I didn't do. Again, my main my main credit that I can give to this is first of all I was there. If I didn't come up with the with the idea. I was the one that had the, the wherewithal to implement that idea, and I probably was part of it in some way, but at least I could implement it, and I was right there to make sure it got on there, and I was there to follow up, to make the matches and, and see what they needed. We talked about it last week. For example, when I say see what it needed, when Alexei wrestled against Alma Drill, you know, the house was, there wasn't a great reaction. It wasn't just that. There wasn't that greater reaction to the match that when the match started uh, before, you know, when they came out, there wasn't that kind of a excited buzz like, oh, you know, we're really waiting to see something. 
segue a little bit here. That angle I did with Steve Kern in Florida, where I assaulted his, his father, who had been a POW uh, for eight years, and I called him a coward, uh, which I apologized for many times over. I'm still apologizing. When we came to the ring, when I came to the ring alone, the buzz was so high. I mean, you could feel it waiting for Steve to get there. And when he got there, he <laughs> didn't come walking, ambling in. He hit the ring in a dead run and got up and started kicking my butt. And that's what people were waiting for because there was no, there could be no other expectation. If somebody did that and just had the guys come out and let the referee separate them and all that, especially a guy like the, the baby face, like Steve, whose father had been, his whole honorable duty had been besmirched by this absolute creep of a heel. Uh, he's going to just sit there and like go by the rules? No. He's going to beat me up as soon as he can get his hands on me. And so back to Alma Drill and Smirnoff and their match, I didn't feel that kind of uh, uh, interest or intensity from the fans. So that's why I was going to take a week off or two weeks. The next show, I was going to do something to build that uh, intensity between them and then bring them back in another main event. But uh, I didn't get the chance because uh, <laughs> I got the ultimatum. If I didn't do it in the next show, he was going to leave. So, well, uh, I didn't want him to, but he, once he said that, he had to go. So, so anything that will get, because the first time Kevin and I got in the ring together, there, that anticipation was there. And we hadn't, you know, I hadn't done anything to him yet. I hadn't done, you know, I hadn't put my hands on him in the, in the territory, I don't think. Uh, maybe I had. I don't think so, though. So, Are you talking about uh, your first match at the Cow? Yeah. Yeah, I think the story, at least everything I, I read up on, was you guys did a few tag matches leading into that, but you had always tagged out. You always ran away. You always made sure you never got in the ring with Kevin. So that was his first time getting his hands on you officially. Well, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, that gets, that gets great hit on me. It also gives him credibility because... You know, I was a heel with a with a mean, you know cowardly side to me. Obviously, I also had a mean streak, you know, and I could I was you know I was tough. Sniveler, you know, I remember one of the greatest gimmicks was uh, Crybaby Cannon, or when he was he was a blustering manager when I saw him, mm -hmm. and when his the guy he was managing was gone, he was alone, and the uh, the babyface was ready to kill him. He'd get down and actually start crying. I mean, tears and everything. Spat running out of his nose. And I mean, I, I, I thought it was an era at the time. I thought I was appalled. I thought, oh, my God, what, what is that? But, uh, yeah, I wasn't smart to, I wasn't smart to, you know, whatever works. Whatever works. If that right. gets you heat, then fine. Go ahead and do it. But uh, I wasn't that, no, I wasn't that kind of baby face or heel. You know, I had credit. But let's face it, you know, and let me and all that. Obviously, I was capable, but you know when you're when you're a heel, and so you don't run from just anybody. You don't run from Almadrill or Pepper Gomez or Pet Patterson, or but you do run from this one guy. Maybe there's a reason you're running, and there the very go. fact that the very fact that you're running could tell the fans, well, if he's running from this one guy, Kevin Sullivan, he's big, actually bigger than Kevin, or you know this guy's in great shape and everything, and yet he doesn't want. He didn't want to get one-on-one -on -one with Sullivan. He must have done something really horrible that he's worried about getting payback for. Right. And so, that yeah, it puts all those, those psychological elements in there that all of a sudden fans get interested. Well, what did he do? You know, and then, okay, well, they did this. And then 
once you have, you know, you, you we can't show any, we can't show any tape or video of the brother uh, getting crippled or whatever right. because it doesn't exist. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's kind of hard to get on tape. <laughs> Man, he hadn't been born yet. Nobody go out there looking for footage of that incident because it does not exist. And I don't mean it's lost to time. I mean, it literally never happened. I don't know that John Sullivan was even a real human being. (laughs) If Kevin had been smart, he would have said, you know, look, I'm going to insist I want a payoff for my brother here. Even though it doesn't exist, I want him to get at least 50 bucks for being on the program. It's funny you talked uh, about a payoff, uh, and we're going to get to that in, in Kevin's father here as we continue to tell this story, actually, when you bring up payoff in, in the Sullivan family, Bob. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's it's funny because, you know, I want to thank Jerome, too, for writing in because, see, we do read everything. We listen to everything you said from the from the get-go. You wanted to tell everything completely and accurately, and that's what we're here to yeah. do. So, I mean, I yes. appreciate people, you know. Send in the, that, that information. If if we get something you know wrong, or it's maybe a misremember or whatever. And and Bob, you never really actually took full credit and said, "Yeah, that's." I remember I came up with this one night when I was uh, watching so and so on the Ed Sullivan show or something back. In, you know, it wasn't like you came up with a reason how it came about. So uh, now it makes well, more sense. It had been done a couple times with the man that does it here in the territory, so it all makes sense. And you put your twist on it. Well, I tell you why I had thought that I came up with it. I was the one that went and bought the ukulele, the toy store. Sure, that's right. why. That's why I thought I did it. I mean, I couldn't. I didn't even think about uh, Alex, but uh, yeah, that makes sense because again, uh, even to this day, I, I hadn't forgotten that that angle that we did because you know it was one of my first. But uh, yeah, uh, then that makes sense. But I, yeah, I do remember going and buying the thing. That's why I, I think it. I, I took credit for the idea, and the stories I'm telling doesn't have any. It's not that I did everything. It's that things happen. And right. I'm telling about my, you know, my part in them, but also one for the people that are involved in these things, well, like Solomon's father and that kind of thing, and McGinnis right. and all these different people, Roy Shire and Pat Patterson, all these different people. If it weren't for them being involved in it, my stories would be boring. I mean, nobody wants to hear about just me, <laughs> I don't think, except me, of course. <laughs> <laughs> No, I'm we'll, just we'll find a way to I'm, squeeze squeeze into this episode, Kevin Sullivan versus Bob Root, part two. But <laughs> yeah. no, but you know, I would say I, I would assume, I, you know, I, I guess you would say that a good booker doesn't have to book everything. They have to have good ears because a lot of guys might have, you know, equally good, if not better, ideas, especially for themselves. And then you could tweak it too, put your twists on it to make it different. It's like you talked about last time. Pepper Gomez says, "Hey, why don't we do this gimmick where you know." I have this cast iron stomach and people jump off on it and maybe somebody jumps off and, you know, hits me in the throat. And you said, Pepper, but you are, you done did that before. And here's the kicker, because you said he had done it somewhere else before. He had done it here in San Francisco with Ray Stevens. Now, it was maybe 15 years prior, 1962, I think they did that. Imagine that a ladder angle in 62. My God, talk about ahead of your time. But Stevens had jumped off, did the bombs away, the knee drop into the throat of Gomez instead of jumping on his stomach. And and Pepper wanted to do that all over again. And you said, you said, you said to Pepper, but you already did that. Wouldn't that make you look silly if you fell for it twice? So you guys actually recreate the gimmick, but you change it completely. And guys, that ukulele angle and the ladder angle right now up at youtube.com slash wrestling grenade. Go back to 1977, the Bob Root booking area here in San Francisco. Check it out yourself. You guys, you put a whole spin on it. First Smirnoff jumps off, lands on Gomez. Okay. He no sells it. Bob Root climbs up top. Well, you know what he's going to do. 
you jump off and you land on his stomach. And now the people that were watching in 62, the people that do remember that, you know, infamous angle, they're going, well, wait a minute. Somebody's supposed to jump in his throat. This is different. And then Pepper gets up and this, this is where it changes. You take the ladder and drive it into his head, busting him wide open. So <laughs> there you, people, you, you suckered everybody in. Oh, I thought this was good. Oh, no, they still did something. So it was pretty cool. Wow. I love it. I'm glad. I mean, uh, it was nice to be able to do something with Pepper. Well, it's cerebral booking. It's cerebral booking. It's not, you know, the WWWF. If you go back and watch, the angle was every four years, you'd turn a baby face heel, usually on Bruno or, or Strongbow or somebody. You could be, it could be Jimmy Valiant. It could be Spiros right. Arion. Later on, even, even Peter Maivia went heel up there. And that was kind of the big, you know, the big angle every few years. And that was pretty much all you got in New York. But man, a lot of other territories thinking outside the, the box, man. And you certainly had it going here. I loved it. Well, thank I again. I I share that that credit with everybody that was involved. Kevin was uh, very very instrumental in our angle. I mean, he had himself, and then the, the brother, of course, and uh, his father. And uh, I'm surprised we didn't get his mother and two or three other people in there. Maybe <laughs> Roy wouldn't he, play for the like, pay for the plane tickets, probably. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like in, again in Knoxville, we're fast forwarding a little bit, but. You know, you got somebody like uh, Malenko and Garvin. Garvin already been a booker himself up in, in Montreal, working up there with uh, the Rougeau brothers uh, on a circuit up there in the summertime. He was uh, he was making the matches and all that, and I didn't even know that at the time when we were when we were getting together in, in Knoxville. It wasn't until later years when Ronnie and I got together and we'd drive down the road for a day or two and go visit people and. He tells stories, and then it came out that he, you know, he would he was running the show up there. He was doing the booking. Ronnie's not that much older than me, but he started at age fifteen. Actually, he's younger than me, but he'd been in the business, I think, twelve years by the time I got in, which is a lifetime. It takes about ten years to learn the business if you're gonna if you're ever gonna learn it. Where uh, it's not just uh, a work or you know a manipulation. Of being able to get in a ring and get out there and, and enable people to suspend their disbelief and start getting into what you're doing. It's not just that. There's a lot of people that are great at that. When they get in the law of diminishing returns, they've been there too long and whatever, and people have seen just about everything got to do, and maybe with two or three different uh, opponents. Say they've been there two or three years. Well, does that person, that heel or baby face, whichever one of us, do they have the office hold? Do they have the way to make sure that they're going to be taken care of? Uh, or does can a promoter just say, well, you've been here. You had a good run. See you later. And sometimes, you know, you got people who bought homes, uh, who maybe have a, have a business, a side business in the area that, uh, you know, they're planning on staying, but they didn't know, had what I call the office hold. And that's to make sure that you're going to be around for a while uh, because you have you can keep coming up with ideas and you have the wherewithal, you have the okay to do that as long as you can come up with things that work. Uh, it's very important to have that. That's having that channel into the office where you're always welcome to, to be part of the booking for your own situation. Again, very few people had the, had the acclaim and the drawing power to be able to do that. So. Uh, well, okay. 
Very good lesson learned here on that whole uh, whole deal. I, uh, you know, obviously I, I knew guys like Dusty and stuff had the pull to, you know, get away with things like that. Certainly they were drawing the money. It's kind of like an elite quarterback and he had to call some of his own plays. But um, Well, I guess... yeah. Uh, let me cool, let me reiterate that just for a second. I, you know, before I, I came to that full awareness of that, I mean, like not just what I knew 20 years ago, but all the times I've thought about it since. One night in Miami, Dusty against superstar Billy Graham. And Dusty beat superstar. And then Gary Hart had Hart's army. And he had the Stomper. He had uh, Pac Song. He had me. He had Dick Murdoch. had a couple of Samoan guys. I can't remember exactly who they were. Dick Murdoch uh, or Dick Slater. Uh, there were like six of us. Ox Baker. Yeah. Six of us. And I didn't. I don't know why. Uh, but five of those guys ran into the, into the ring. And like idiots, they came one at a time because, you know, if you're going to try to glom one guy, well, let's all go in there at the same time, you know. Uh, you know, you, while he's pounding on you, we'll be able to come up behind him with a chair and smack him or something. But uh, one after another, they ran in the ring and Dusty slid in the ring and got up. Dusty hit him with the elbow and out, the, out they went. And then during that time, Superstar got a chance to recover. He got up and whacked Dusty a little bit and got a little heat back. And then uh, Dusty went and I think beat him again. What you did is you took all the heat from five different heels as well as, as Billy Graham. And all went, all, that all went into Dusty. Now that's having the office hold because <laughs> they, didn't, <laughs> they didn't need to have a ton of heat on any individual in order to draw as long as they had Dusty. So that, that changed your whole dynamic in terms of like, who gets heat? Who, who do you get hot? A lot of territories said, well, we want to get a heel really hot. We want to have a top baby face, of course, but we want to get a heel really hot. But we want to see, uh, people want to see him get beat. A lot of fans will come to watch the good guy win, but a lot of them won't continue to come just for that unless they're winning over somebody they really want to see get beat. And not just beat, they want to see him get beat up. They want to see him get hurt. They want to see him carried out of there on a stretcher because they've done something by the time that they deserve to be. And people, that, that's what they pay to see. That's why you have cage matches and lumberjack matches and all that kind of thing because people want to, we're trying to guarantee you have to do that because if you don't, the people are going to say, well, Roop ran out of there every time. And then there's no way, there was no way to not, you know, keep him there. So why should we go pay? to go to the cow palace again, if he's going to get out, just get out of there again. So you had to have some way to guarantee that, you know, another thing is eventually you had to take that whipping. You had to give the fans what they'd pay. Sometimes if you do it right, they'd pay three or four for three or four shows waiting to see you get what you got coming to you. But finally you have to give it to them. After you give it to them, you have to do something like, uh, oh, say cripple the guy's father. And then, uh, <laughs> then suddenly, uh, what he did to you is all forgotten. <laughs> now they want you to do even worse. <laughs> you know what? You run. <laughs> you run again. Now you didn't run, and you they got to see they got to see what they wanted. They got your butt kicked. Right. But yeah. Using your own hold. Anyway. That's yeah. funny. It's funny you mentioned all of that because you know I feel like deja vu here from things I've I've seen in recent days. Um, uh, because we're going to jump back into 77 in San Francisco at this point. 
And just a quick recap, guys, of what's been going on here in the Kevin Sullivan-Bob Roop feud. We know Sullivan arrived at the end of June wearing a T-shirt, the Get Roop Movement, as he's coming to, he's seeking you out. He wants, he's calling you out. He wants you in the ring. Uh, apparently, you have injured or crippled his brother from ever getting back in the ring again, John Sullivan, uh, down in the Florida Territory. Never happened, guys. But uh, in the kayfabe world, in an alternate dimension, John Sullivan is laid out somewhere, never to be able to wrestle again, all thanks to Bob Roop. And Sullivan, your former friend, has found you here in San Francisco looking for revenge, finally gets you in the ring at the end of July, and he beats you with your own finisher, two shoulder breakers. But he doesn't win the TV title because 20 minutes had elapsed, and the title was only on the line for the first 20 minutes of the matchup. That's fine. Still some revenge here because Mr. Roop shows up on TV with his arm in a sling selling the shoulder breakers, uh, professing to be injured, forcing Eddie Graham, the president of the NWA, to send in a VTR, uh, fining Kevin Sullivan for intentionally trying to cripple you, and then, of course, also threatening to suspend Sullivan if he ever uses the move again, the shoulder breaker, your finisher. So at this point, a rematch is set, but Bob Roop can't wrestle. So in his place, this masked being by the name of the Star Warrior who also just happens to wear red, white, and blue garb. Imagine that. Now, Hank Renner, the fans, everybody around, especially Kevin Sullivan, seem to believe the man under this mask is, in fact, Bob Roop, who is faking said shoulder injury. Uh, and then heading into the next show, I believe August 20th at the Cow Palace, Kevin Sullivan brings in someone visiting. No, not John Sullivan, but rather his real-life father, George Sullivan, arrives in San Francisco to see his son exact revenge on you, or, sorry, on the Star Warrior. Uh, Roy Shire comes out on television here, and he says uh, something along the lines of, this matchup, uh, should the Star Warrior lose, he will have to unmask. Therefore, Sullivan has a chance to prove, if it is indeed true, that the Star Warrior is Bob Roop. That kind of sets the stage for our next matchup. So it's going to be Kevin Sullivan versus the Star Warrior, the man under the mask. Should he lose, he will have to unmask and show the world who he is there in the Cow Palace. But Sullivan also announces he brings out his father here onto the uh, San Francisco television, the big-time TV, and his father in town to watch the matchup from ringside. His father going to accompany Kevin to the match. Yeah, that, that sounds uh, vaguely familiar, yeah. Yeah, that Star Warrior, uh, that guy was unreal. Uh, I hate to stick around that long, but, you know. Uh, Piece of uh, work. Yeah. Well, not only, you know, the thing with the dad, we we actually, I don't know if you ever saw the piece where we had him on television. Uh, he was at the gym with Kevin. Kevin was working out and, and his father was there. He was like helping him. He was, you know, like adjusted weights and, you know, not doing anything real strenuous, but he was uh, carrying a towel to help him wipe off and all that kind of thing. And he got to say a few things, you know, he, he did a, a promo too about uh, hurt, you know, crippling his, his other son, which, you know, that's great, you know, because it gives you, you know, it gives you a bona fides that here's, uh, you know, it's not just these wrestlers who have been known. I mean, believe it or not, have been no, told to tell, known to tell a lie from time to time. Uh, but here's, here's a father of the, the, who's talking about his own other son being crippled uh, by this Bob Roop. Now, the thing was, this, the father was about five foot four, I think. Um, he was. Uh, he was a short, uh, stocky guy. Yeah. Yeah, he was short and stocky, and uh, he was obviously, you know, a senior citizen. He wasn't like infirm. He wasn't like on a cane or anything. But he was 
obviously in his probably he's probably in his sixties at the time. But I've got yeah, he was ter- sixty four. I don't know if that's accurate or not, but that's the age I was getting from everything. Okay, and he had it's an older man. Sure, you know Kevin. Kevin wasn't like a, a like a kid. He wasn't like he was an older guy. But uh, yeah, the father was very credible. You know, when he made the the on TV when he said what he said, and I think it, I think we also had him out there with Kevin a time or two doing interviews. Yes, where you know he was talking about you know being on the you know being on the hunt for me too. You know, it was you know, the whole family was you know still trying to come to grips with the you know the the, the harm done to their family member, and they want to see uh, they want to see justice done. And again, it's a way of getting. It's a way of getting instant credibility. I, I mean, you, instead of trying to, you know, spend three or four months building up that kind of uh, intensity by doing something every show and just gradually, gradually building your your audience, it's a way to like jumpstart it. And you you do it with the idea that once you do that, you do jumpstart it and get people coming again. You give them a good enough show that they'll continue to come. They, they, even once you're particular angle or your issue is settled you know the revenge is gotten and you can have maybe you start out with uh, instead of having uh just the main event say me against kevin you have a co-main event where there's maybe a tag team match that has an angle and another single match that has some heat to it and then again all the matches on the undercard uh that was another thing that that roy was doing poorly it's a simple thing as like your first match, the first match of the night. Don't put something that's going to a dud. Don't put a rookie out there uh, who doesn't know what he's doing. Put put some guys in Florida. They used to do it with a guy named Tony Charles. Oh, yeah. And Tony was an English wrestler, one of the great. I mean, the guy was great. Yeah. Unbelievable. He, uh, those English boys, they knew how to wrestle in the ring. I mean, just uh, even Billy Robinson. I never was impressed with Billy Robinson's work. I saw a match with him and Tony Charles. I'm talking about poetry in motion. They didn't, no punches, no forearms, nothing. But these guys wrestled for about eight, nine, ten minutes. It what a contest, back and forth. And I mean, totally believable. They didn't look like two acrobats, you know, practicing a routine. Right. They looked like two guys who were going at it. Psychology, everything was great. But, you know, Billy, you couldn't work that style in this country because... The fans are trained to expect something different than than that, but but Tony was a fit. He was an agile. He was you know he could he could do a uh, he could take a backdrop where he was like fifteen feet in the air. I'm talking about not man not fifteen, but ten, and uh, laid out and but he'd go out there and he he would have a they put him with somebody that you didn't ask him to don't get in a hole, don't ground him. You guys run around and you know stay in the ring. Give give us about seven eight minutes of action to get the people on you know get the people get the juices flowing get the people say hey that was great then your second match you can have the newcomer or some guy you're bringing in you're going to try to get over you have him go out there and go for five minutes and beat somebody so anyway what I'm saying is that you don't book a card in just the main event you want to underneath matches need to be important too right the order the order you have and what you're going to do in them you know if you you know, if you're beating, if you're beating, uh, you're beating baby faces all night. You don't want to do that anyway. Anybody who would do that is out of their mind. Uh, you can't, you, you know, the bad bad guys can't win uh, more than 
once or maybe one and a half times a night, uh, you're going to turn people off. But uh, the way to do good shows is uh, is to let the baby faces win. And even if the heel gets out of there and keeps his title or whatever, uh, and sometimes you don't. Sometimes you just go ahead and get beat. You get your heat back on television. That's the place to get it back because it's a lot safer. You don't have to worry about 20,000 people trying to kill you. You know, you're on TV, there's only 100 people there, and you got all of them, you know, like half that many wrestlers around. So uh, to come save you, those 100 get mad. But so I think we started off with Solomon's father being a short and dumpy. We <laughs> got segued all the way down to Tony Charles. But yeah, that first match was important, and that was part of the things. Now, that was part of my duty as a booker. I wasn't asking Kevin or anybody else about advice on how to do this stuff. I, you know, we were just, uh, Kevin and I talked about our angle, and Smirnoff talked about things that he thought he could do with, with Dean Ho. I don't remember if Dean ever contributed much or not, although I'm not saying he wouldn't or couldn't. Dean was a wonderful guy. He was a really nice, nice human being. In fact, they all were. All of them were. You know, we were getting along good. Everybody was having fun. So what a, what a wonderful place to work out there in San Francisco. Oh, my God, the short trips. You got good pay, beautiful weather. Yeah, it was a beautiful place to work. Um, I could see why, you know, guys wanted to race Stevens and Patterson stayed out there for, I mean, 20, what, 15, 20 years. A long time. Uh, yeah, and I don't blame them. You know, I mean, that's a great place to work. So, so well, you you talked about Sullivan's father showing up on TV. There's actually footage of that out there, and uh, the video. I don't have the video, the workout video, but I've read about it. And uh, in regards to Kevin Sullivan working out, his father being by his side. I guess it was set to the the theme from the Rocky movie, which was still pretty popular by this point in '77. So got that fresh on everybody's mind. Playing the Rocky theme as Kevin's getting ready for the the big matchup against the the Star Warrior here, but it's just. What layers, you know, not only is are we doing the unmasking gimmick in this matchup, but now it's father ringside as well to watch Kevin get that ultimate revenge for the Sullivan family as finally the time arrives, Bob, August 20th, 1977, another intense filled match. Uh, Sullivan ripping at your mask during the encounter, even exposing some of your head in the process, done by design to tease the unmasking, but also to showcase the gusher. Uh, maybe a little gig there as a bloody forehead on the Star Warrior would follow. Uh, Kevin, eventually, though, he's going to lock you. I mean, I'm sorry, the Star Warrior in an abdominal stretch, leaving the masked man wide open for the referee to, to check that gash on his head. And the ref, he checks on said cut and he calls for the bell. The referee declaring the Star Warrior unable to continue due to excessive blood loss and perhaps visual impairment. Not really sure, but uh, as you might suspect, the crowd of nearly 12,000. Remember when you got started? It was 4,000. By July, it was 8,100, 8, I think. And here we are in August, 12,000 people here in the Cow Palace. Uh, they explode here, not only for Kevin's victory, but because they know that the Star Warrior will have to unmask. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. Memory lane. I don't, you know, I don't remember all of that. Uh, so, Okay. You got me hooked now. Huh? Where do we go from here? Well, here's where we go. <laughs> I'm going to tell uh, you what, what what happens next, Bob. <laughs> okay. So this well, warrior guy, this guy in the hood, he has no intention of following through with the pre-match stipulation. So he tries to escape the ring, but he gets caught in the apron. Kevin pulling him back inside, grabbing one hand by the mask, drilling him with a bunch of right hands until finally yanking the mask yeah. off of this star warrior. 
and the man of the mask proves to be Bob Roop. Well, I'll be damned, Bob. I can't believe it. That rotten. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. That's me, isn't it? Uh, what, what a horrible thing to do. Well, you know what? Uh, that old man had it coming. Well, what so, am I talking about? I'm the one that got it. So, yeah, uh, those are fun times because you know why? We had I, we talked about it the last couple of shows is that uh, those folks out there hadn't seen this, uh, or at least not much of it. So, and you didn't have cable TV yet where, you know, you could see everything in the country. Right. So, you know, this was new stuff and it, it had that, you know, it had that, you know, like, like new stuff type of re response to it. Like, oh, oh, it's, you know, it worked. It, it works the way it's supposed to when you don't know that, okay, in Florida, when we did it, they did it three years ago and then two years before that and then three years before that. So longtime fans like in Miami who've been coming for 15, 20 years every week have already seen this for three or four times and, you know, what you're doing. So it doesn't have quite the same appeal as it does to an audience that it's a virgin audience to this kind of thing. Uh, and I do remember that kind of response. It was like electric and, you know, it was like in the atmosphere, especially in, in the palace, in the cow palace. I remember that uh, I could just feel it in the air. It was just a buzz going. Uh, there was always anticipation, like what's we were trying to fool the audience, and they like with the latter thing you're talking about. Uh, instead of doing what they thought was going to happen, you do something different, and you you create some, you know, like some. Hey, wait a minute! Uh, this isn't going like I think it was supposed to go. Wait a minute! It couldn't be real, could it? Wait a minute, babe, wait a minute. Maybe these guys are real. So at this point, Kevin Sullivan, well, he beat you last month, used your own move against you, pinned you. Then you uh, tried to psych him out, pretend like you were injured. You wore a mask into the rematch here, and he beats you again uh, with his father now ringside. So maybe the Sullivan family has finally exacted their revenge. Or maybe not. As the fans celebrate Kevin's victory and Bob's unmasking, Sullivan's real-life father, George, entered the ring to enjoy the moment with his son. The fans, emotionally invested in this family story, felt that cathartic moment along with the Sullivans. Now, as uh, future horror films would teach us, Bob, you never turn your back on the villain unless you're 100% sure that he's quote-unquote dead. Kevin, he yes. left you a bloody mess on the mat, unmasked and laid out. But he didn't right. put the final nail in the coffin. So no. that allows you to recover behind the Sullivan family's back. And this, this leads to Bob Roop guys recovering from the beating and attacking Kevin Sullivan, tying him up in the ropes. And when father George tries to grab hold of Bob to get him off of his son, as any good father would do, Bob, you turn around and do the unthinkable to a 64 year old retired man who has never been in a wrestling ring in his life. You scoop him up and deliver. Well, I, I, I've heard that you try to take care of him. But the way he went up, it's one of the nastiest looking shoulder breakers I've ever seen in my life. And, and Kevin Sullivan's father has to be stretchered out of the arena. So once again, you get them. Last time, he pins you, but on TV, he's fined, threatened with suspension. And here he thinks he's got you again. He beats you again. You unmask. How could you possibly get revenge? Well, you took out his brother, and now you take out his father. And I can't believe you got that white hot noise where the crowd goes silent for just a moment. That's a scary time there before they just explode in rage. 
Uh, and, you know, I do remember this very vividly. This I remember doing because those are the kind of, uh, those moments are like etched in your uh, titanium, in your memory, in your memory files. Got Kevin tied in the ropes and I was pounding on him. And his father, you know, was at his side. And, you know, he's like, pull, like pulling up my arm, trying to think when I yes. try maybe ch choking Kevin or whatever. He was like pulling up my arm and I brushed him aside a couple of times. And I go back to pounding Kevin about the third time I brushed him aside. I like stop for a second. I look at him. I look back at Kevin. I look back at him and I grab the old man, pull him out in the ring and give him the shoulder breaker. Mm -hmm. And I hit the bricks <laughs> yes. because, yeah, I mean, I did stick around. We'll get into this later about you, know, you got to know when to leave. You know, when to, you know, when to get, get out of there, because if you stay, I'm talking about 10 seconds too long, you're making a serious mistake, because that's all it takes for the aisle to close up with you still on the wrong side of, of things. You know, you're not that well, as soon as I gave him the shoulder breaker, I didn't go. I didn't take a lap around the ring going, <laughs> ha, ha, ha. Yeah. I, I slid out of the ring and took off. I didn't I didn't run, but I took off and the people I, I watched, I went by him. I was I was watching. Believe me, I was watching the people on my way out because the cop there were no cops there yet. They weren't expecting to leave yet, so I'm going down that aisle. I wasn't going to wait for them. I wasn't going down the aisle. I'm keeping my eye on the people. Are everybody's on their feet. They're looking at the ring to see what's going to happen. Is he uh, is the old man dead? Is he going to get up? You know what's happening. Kevin's tending to his father, and the building was the downstairs part was about three quarters full. So I remember, because I remember there were maybe four or five rows of empty seats at the very back. When I got that area, I was much more comfortable, but I was, I was so, I got my time to just right. Because when I turned, I looked over my shoulder, uh, the people from the, from the rows I'd already passed were starting to come back down that aisle after me. And I, I got in the back and the cops were back there. So I didn't have a problem, but yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I had a ton of heat. It forgot all about me getting beat. Forgot all about it. That, <laughs> yeah, had yeah. Nothing to, that's how you book. That's booking. I mean, it's amazing because we're you know we're we're deep in this story now. A couple months into this story, and every time it seems like there's no plausible way that the heel's going to get his heat back, you somehow find a way. And I mean, you really found a way. And for people that think that Bobby's maybe exaggerating about how quick he got out of the ring, this match actually exists. The film from the Cow Palace. Is up right now on my YouTube channel, guys. You can go watch the closing several minutes of this match, including the post-match shenanigans, the unmasking of Bob, and de uh, delivering that shoulder breaker to George Sullivan. What a rough bump he, he took. But uh, yeah, you didn't waste any time getting out. I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way. Sullivan, Kevin, is being unhooked from the ropes as you deliver the move to his father. And But from the time Kevin gets free until he can make it to his father to check on him, you're already long gone. That's how yep. quick you get the hell out of Dodge. You don't even oh, want to help. stick around to see what might transpire. So uh, it made, made total sense to me. And Kevin lay there over top of his father checking on him. We see a stretcher come in. They stretcher his father out. And then there's also a clip from TV following that where Roy Shire comes out. Remember last last time Sullivan beat you? He got you know got lambasted by, by Eddie Graham. Well, this time Roy Shire comes out and he says to Kevin, well, I told your father he can't get in the ring. So like he's not going to do anything <laughs> about it because he said if I – if I stick up for your father, then I have to stick up for every wrestling fan that tries to get in the, you know, during a match. 
So that was Roy's reasoning. So I, I don't remember if Kevin got fined for his. I, it's it's amazing. His father was crippled and sent to the hospital, and Roy Shires laying out a fine because his father got in the ring to get crippled. Just amazing story. People had to just. I mean, it was like icing on top of icing for your heel heat at this point. Yeah, I had to talk Roy into doing a lot of that stuff. He didn't. He didn't. He didn't like it. He didn't know what was going on. I said, just trust me, you know. And <laughs> again, you had that house. You know, you had the. The seats being filled, you know, going. Roy, from, I'm I'm bringing you twelve thousand, and just shut up and do yeah. do what I'm asking yeah. you, please. Yeah, well, I had credibility by that time, and you know, I mean, he he still he didn't like it. Oh, I mean, but he was a lot he was a lot happier. Let's not even worry about what Roy was doing financially. Uh, that might be illegal or wrong. Uh, just if he'd been done it, doing everything right, he was making a lot of money. Right, because you know you only pay the building fifteen uh, percent, something like that, and you know the rest of it's yours. You have costs. You got to pay your town, of course, but even that's only supposedly thirty percent of of your gate, and very few promoters ever honored that. You know he might walk out. You know legitimately walk out with uh, you know made twenty five grand or something like that that night. Well, you're doing that twice a month. You know that's a pretty good month, fifty grand. From sure. one building. So, I mean, regardless of trying to take any, you know, icing on the cake, the cake itself is pretty good. So he had a lot to be, you know, he had a lot to, he had a lot to protect there. What a pickle for him to be in. Uh, he didn't have control of it. We alluded to it an hour or so ago that perhaps wanting to have that control was to make sure he protected his baby there, his uh, walking uh, Scrooge McDuck uh, bank vault. Um, that he was able to fill up as much as he wanted to. He wanted to protect that by having control of everything that he could. But if you got somebody else that comes in uh, and that is, you know, making you a lot of money, that can, uh, I'm sure that had an effect that he was going to ride it out and see how far it went. Well, that was that's good stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. but getting out of there uh, was critical. The timing was, especially out there, you had a bunch of people I told, referred to it on, our, I think, our first West Coast show. We talked about fans that were there just to try to get a lawsuit by getting a wrestler to smack them or something. How did you go about doing this shoulder breaker spot with, with George Sullivan? Did you take him aside? Did you guys talk it over with him? Did you try the move once before you know the, the, the fans came in the door? Did you guys do anything to get him ready? Because obviously his son was a wrestler, but... How much did he actually know about the wrestling business? To clearly, he appeared and, and did the gimmick on TV, talking about his crippled son. So he got it to some degree, I guess. By this point, I was just curious how you, you set things up to perform a wrestling move on a non wrestler back in the nineteen seventies in the kayfabe era. Well, I, I remember. I do remember he wasn't hurt, um, although trying to think of me. And of course, you know, I was, when I was sixty four, I was. Stiff from, you know, 32 years of amateur and pro wrestling, um, which have a tendency to, you know, give you arthritis and all, every other kind of joint and tendon and muscle problem. But um, he didn't have that. But I've got him around the waist, and I've got my left arm under his left shoulder so that when he comes down, he doesn't actually, uh, the only contact he makes with my knee it's just to stop him. I don't bounce. I mean, with guys that were fit and, you know, Jack Briscoe, say somebody like that, I could bounce them off my leg because it wasn't going to hurt them. 
Right. And that way they'd rise up in the air a little bit. And I mean, in one case, uh, I almost looked like I got up and like body slammed, you know, came down on top of them, slammed them because they bounced high enough. But uh, usually it was to make it more spectacular where it looked like they bounced off my leg. I was actually, I had them around the waist of my right arm and my left arm under the shoulder. So when I brought them down on my knee, as we would come back up, I would I would toss them with my right. left arm. Yeah, I just saw and, a match with you and Mike Jackson. <laughs> that, that was a really yeah. good one last week. Yeah. 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 And that way, you know, it looked like it looked like uh, it did. It was a vicious, nasty looking hole. That's why when I did it in Germany, everybody laughed. I got a little bit upset, but if I set the guy's head on fire first, they probably would have laughed even more. But <laughs> I was just curious, like if there was any like uh, prep for him because you know he had never no. done. I wasn't necessarily worried about you actually executing a move. It was more so just picking a sixty-four year old man up because when you go back and watch this video. <laughs> it's not pretty <laughs> like his landing and it has nothing to do with you. It's just, he's just kind of like a, a loose body kind of getting scooped up and, and driven down. So I was just curious like how that all went, but apparently he was okay. Even though I reportedly, I guess the storyline wise, you guys even went and put him in like a, a fake arm cast or something and took pictures to show on TV after the fact that you had crippled him. So George Sullivan now out. John Sullivan now out. Kevin Sullivan certainly looking for revenge. You'd have to imagine at this point, uh, you're in some deep doo-doo the next time he gets you in the ring. So here in August, just another roller coaster, much like last month. And just when you think there's no way in the world you can top that thing, you know, you guys do. It gets even more interesting as the story progresses. But you simmer it down, kind of like that Alma Drill thing you were talking about. Hey, let's take a show off. So when we bring it back, we can come up with something even better. And so in September, you actually work Dean Ho at the Cow Palace. But also in September, this is uh, here comes the Pat McGinnis story. Fair warning, uh, Bob. Uh, a newcomer to the territory comes in, in uh, by the name of Pat McGinnis. And uh, you've mentioned him off air to me a few times now. You say, wait till we get to that Pat McGinnis story, or you're going to talk a little bit about him. You said he might take up a whole episode by himself. Well, I'm hoping that to be a little bit of an exaggeration here this week. But uh, that's that's it. We're here in September, so what better time to take a brief break from the Sullivan Root feud and talk a little bit about this former wrestler, Pat McGinnis. And before you get going, Bob, just want to ref uh, refresh everybody on who McGinnis is, a journeyman wrestler. I can only find results from wrestling maybe five or six years in the business from the mid to late 70s. And he kind of jumped around from the WWWF to Florida, here in San Francisco, Los Angeles, I think he's best known in Memphis. I think they gave him the belt there for a few weeks' time anyway. So that's pretty much all I know on Pat McGinnis. The best way I can describe him, guys, a burly dude, not really defined, but he's a pretty thick guy, and he even did some strongman-type things on TV in certain territories, ripping phone books and whatnot. But uh, that's really all I got on him. So I'm looking forward to hearing whatever you have to tell us. I just want to segue back just for a sec. Yeah, okay. um, sure. You're talking about the uh, intensity of, what it looked like when uh, I gave Mr. Uh, Sullivan the uh, the shoulder breaker. Mm -hmm. I think that explains when I talked earlier about the fans standing there and not looking at me, they were looking at the ring. I think that they were trying to see how badly he was hurt uh, because that must be because uh, I just ignored me until I got, actually got by him. Now it probably 10 seconds hadn't gone by since I shoulder break him. I gave him the shoulder breaker 
that I am now at the, at the end of the, where the people are sitting, and I'm, I'm in, kind of in the clear. But I, I know that going by them, nobody was looking at me. They weren't like, oh, I'm going to kill you. They were all watching the ring. And I think that I'm trying to remember, I can't think of what Kevin could have been doing that would have been so uh, enthralling, except, you know, protecting was, his father. Yeah, he but was hovering over his father, checking on his father. And I think you're right. I think the crowd was just very concerned at first. They had forgotten yeah. about you for a second because they were more. Con- yeah, yeah, I think you're right. They were like, well, uh, I can't. They're still processing the whole damn thing just happened. And you yeah. got out of there just in the nick of time. Like, it oh, was yeah. just that 10 second period they needed to go, where did that son of a bitch go? And then you're already gone. So, yep. yeah. Yeah. Well, if I stuck around, I mean, Kevin had no, not that point of view. The only thing to do is beat the crap out of me again. I've already been beat, you right. know, and, yeah. you know, uh, so, uh, yeah, and that worked out. Okay. On, on to Pat McGinnis. Kevin came to me and said, uh, Bob, I got a buddy from back east, and uh, he needs to, I think he told me he needs to get out of town. Okay. okay. He, needs to, he needs to get, uh, hide and be scarce out there. <laughs> McGinnis was a, McGinnis, that's funny, you mentioned uh, the Rocky movie earlier, and Rocky in the movie, Rocky was a loan shark collector. Right. He collected for a loan shark. Well, that's what McGinnis did. So Kevin said, "Can can uh, can you book him? Can he come out here?" I said, "Yeah, I can book him. You know, I'm not I can't I'm not going to use him on top because I'd never heard of him. So and that doesn't mean that I doesn't mean he's a nobody. I but you know he hadn't been on any magazine covers or you know his name wasn't wrestlers are always talking about other wrestlers. I just hadn't even heard his name before. Right. So anyway, it turned out uh, I don't know exactly why I ended up going to the airport to pick him up." And I took him to my apartment, so he was going to get some place to stay. But until he did, he was going to stay with me for a day or two. And the guy was, you know, he was uh, he was big, rugged-looking guy. I mean, he was well, maybe six feet tall, but you know, probably 250, 60 pounds, solid. And he had a distinguishing mark that I'd seen one time before, was the back of his left hand. He had a bite mark on it. Harley Race was the only other one I saw that had the bite mark. And when I asked Harley how, how he got it, he told me that he'd been in a bar and having a few drinks, and there was some some guy that was giving him crap. And the guy kept talking about uh, wrestling being fake and all this kind of stuff, and Harley just ignored him. And finally, when the guy got close enough, Harley made a move with his right hand like he was going to draw back and, and like punch him. But instead of doing that, he lunged with his left hand and came up uh, with the fist into the guy's face, sometimes like Harley did, and like apparently McGinnis did too, you catch the guy in the in the mouth. And I mean, I, when I say catch him, you drive his teeth into your fist to the point that there's a big, I'm talking about a serious bite mark. Looks like a, a person's mouth. Like if you took somebody's dentures and hammered them to the back <laughs> of your hand yeah. and then pulled them out, that's what it would look like. Well, Harley told me I got his, you know, alter violence, so he, Hit the guy with uh, his guy. The guy went down. Harley kicked him in the head a couple of times and went back to his beer. Well, so here shows McGinnis was the, was the same thing. So I said, "Well, uh, you know, I some of you didn't bite yourself. How, how'd you get the? How'd you get that?" He said, oh, "I had a guy that I'd already talked to him a couple of times and broke his wrist, and that wasn't enough. So I had to go a little farther. <laughs> so I'm looking. I said, "Yeah, huh?" And, what exactly? What beat up your wife, or what? What, what was it? What happened? He said, "No, nah, to my job, I collect uh, for guys that owe money." 
these guys just said, you got to chase them down all this. And, you know, you finally find them and they you know, beg and they give you all these stories and everything. And he said, but if I've had to look for two or three days, I've spent all that money on gas and my time and all that. The guy didn't have any money at all. Well, he's got to give me something. This guy had to give me some teeth. I thought, oh, wow. Wow. <laughs> so now he, he was very matter of fact about this. Here's the guy like talking about, he's telling you how to change a tire, how to fix brakes on a car or something. Just matter of fact. And he started talking about dogs. He said, yeah. He said, I love dogs. He said, you know, he said, I, I had a Doberman for a while, but he said, you know, I got a Mastiff, a Mastiff now. And I said, he said, I love that dog. He said, oh, they're so great. And he said, just well, great dog. I thought, well, you know, this guy sounds like kind of a, you know, badass, but you know, well, a guy that has that kind of good heart for a dog and everything, because he sounds like a pretty good guy. He said, he said, yeah, you know, he said those, those mastiffs, he said, they've got the kind of biting power in their jaws, you know, like almost up there with the shark. It's like 6,000 pounds per square inch. I said, well, where does that, what does that have to do with, why is that important to you? And he said, well, when a guy just, made it clear he wasn't going to pay. I already broke his leg, his arm, whatever. He had to pay some way. He said, what I did is I took my first of Doberman and then with the Mastiff, I trained them that anybody that came near my car that they were to kill. They were, you know, I would put them in a car and anybody care, you know, I'd leave the window open. He said, I'd get a broom handle. I'd uh, poke them and torture them with the broom handle. So they got to the point that anybody came near the car they just go berserk. And I said, well, I guess nobody's going to steal your car. He looked at me like I was a moron. He said, no, no. He said, no. When I, when I finally, you know, I had to look three or four days for the guy. After the third day, I'd bring the dog along, make sure. He said, I'd find a guy. He said, I'd know where he was. What I'd do is I'd leave the window on the car. I'd leave it down about four inches. I'd go get the guy. You know, make sure he'd come along one way sure. or another. He might have might have a broken leg or something, but I'd make sure he got there. And he said, and what I do is I take him up, I shove his face in, in that four inch gap in the window and let the dog go to work on his face. And he said, wow. you know, that Doberman just he just wouldn't get it done. I mean, oh he'd rip a guy's face up. But that mastiff, that son of a bitch would that dog would bite a guy, would eat a guy's face right off his head. Bam. And he, he <laughs> yes, I, I'm looking at him. I'm going, huh? Oh. Wow. Uh, did, okay. Did you sleep with one eye open when he was staying with you, dear God. No, I wasn't worried. <laughs> he didn't have the dog with him. The dog, he went up the dog on the plane. He just seems he, capable he of doing there, anything so at this point. I wasn't. I, well, I, I'm the guy's boss. If he, if the guy wants to work. You know, I mean, I would say I wasn't worried well, about it it's myself. Well, it's also pro wrestling. As crazy as that sounds, I'm sure there's yeah. a lot, plenty of other much crazier stories. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, I'm sure there are too. But, but no, I believed him. I mean, I believed that he because he showed me. Oh, I believe he had he had a he had a sort of a one track mind. You know, that track was uh, you know he was barreling down that track full of speed ahead when he got motivated. That's what it made later on when I checked him on Shire. What made it so funny, but uh, or so great, uh, as a way to keep Shire away from me. But I found people like this interesting. Now, you, I, you out there listening, and you think, well, you know, that's Bob. It's kind of repulsive that you wouldn't be totally disgusted and 
repulsed and not want to have anything to do with person, people like that. And yes, you have a point. But again, this is pro wrestling. This is the real world. You think everybody that came to match was uh, from you know going to church on Sunday, uh, Saturday night matches? Uh, maybe they were, but it's because they had a lot to beg for, you know, ask for forgiveness for. Pro wrestling is a violent, you know, simulated violent sport. If it was real, my God, it'd be worse than the, back in the Roman gladiator days where yeah. they did fight to the death yeah. if it was real. But we simulate the very worst stuff possible. We have people bleeding. We have women getting beat up. We have children being hurt. We have people getting hit with chairs. We have guys throwing fire in each other's face. We have guys being blinded. We have all these kind of things going we, on. We so, even have assholes trying to cripple people's de uh, old fathers. I mean, yes. all kinds of we have a total coward who will pick, <laughs> pick on people's aged fathers. And, you know, you karma and say what goes around comes around. I, I left my, my two boys, youngest sons, and I own a home together. I wonder if that's why I'm getting so much grief these days. Mm. <laughs> it's my turn. <laughs> no. We get along, but they do like to ruin me. Uh -huh. So this guy comes into town. Uh, you know, it's funny you mentioned he was a friend of Kevin's or Kevin knew him because they're actually both from Massachusetts. So that makes sense, the connection there. Maybe they knew each other from, you know, the, the uh, you know, uh, New York area territory. I know Kevin had been there fairly recently and, uh, you know, McGinnis did come through there as well. But yeah, so here we go. He's in town now. He's uh, staying with you a couple of days, going to get his own place. And you find out some very interesting information. I can't wait to hear where we go from here. Yeah, and uh, segue a little bit. We uh, talking. We were talking about um, Chris Cole, yes, uh, and Chris being gay. Now we haven't gotten there yet, but I want to. I want to just let our listener know that Chris, the first night Chris and I went out together, I was out there alone. I, later on, my girlfriend from Florida came out and stayed with me for a while, and, and that didn't work out. I ended up sending her home, and later I married her, but not from there, and and so. But when I went out with Chris, you know, I didn't know he was gay. He wasn't really, like, feminine. And don't get me wrong, I I have no bias about anybody being anything. I mean, I don't like ex-murderers for that much. But uh, I said, let's Chris knew San Francisco. So we, we were together on a Saturday night, Saturday evening. I said, well, let's go where we can, uh, you know, maybe find some girls, you know, and you know, maybe dance or something. He said, well, he said, Bob, I'm gay. I said, okay, let's go find a place where we can both find somebody to dance with. And that was it, you know, but but what happened with Chris, and we haven't gotten there yet, but it was a way for me to have uh, like an escort. I would have an escort into San Francisco being the gay capital of the universe. I would have an escort into that world uh, of someone who was familiar with it so that I could learn about different uh, lifestyle, right. homosexuality, right. without you know, and get over any prejudice I had, or but a lot of prejudice usually comes from ignorance. You don't know, oh, yeah. you don't know about things. You're afraid of things you don't understand or don't know about. I don't like, I don't like the idea of spending my whole life trying to educate myself. And and he and so here's the thing, with with one of the boys, that was our bond. One of the boys. I wasn't a booker yet. We were, we were, we were both workers. We were just working there. But I had a guy I could trust. He wasn't going to in any way compromise. Now he ribbed the heck out of me. We'll get into that. But he wasn't going to compromise his standing in the in the pro wrestling world for his personal life. And I knew that. And plus, 
and not just an Olympian. I one time uh, Fritz von Erich was going to have me take on a 20, the toughest guy from each professional NFL football team all in one night in Dallas. And uh, when I thought he was serious about it, he was, but uh, he couldn't make it happen. I went on. I thought, well, just being a wrestler isn't going to be enough. Uh, some of these guys are former national wrestler, NCAA champion wrestler heavyweights. Uh, I'm going to have to learn some martial arts too. And I went and I took, so I had trained in martial arts and a bunch of different things. I mean, not to be a black belt or anything like that, but just enough to know how to defend myself from a lot of different stuff. So I brought all that to me with going out with Chris. I wasn't worried about, uh, we went to places the first rugby pulled on me. We went to that club that well, were somebody for both of us. The only female in the place was the singer in the band. And she had she had four guys, big guys backing her up. That was the only female in the place. Everybody else was male. And I was at the bar no longer in about five minutes. And I felt something poke me in the, on the buttock. I don't want to say in the butt, but on the butt. <laughs> I turned around. I'm looking at the, I'm looking at the top lapel button on a guy about six foot eight. And I look up and he's smiling down at me. But as he looked at me, he could. He went, oh, darn. He could tell he knew I wasn't gay because I didn't <laughs> smile back. So, but and that was Chris's idea of a rib, which I thought it was funny. But I didn't feel I didn't feel threatened. Nobody right. was gonna they're not gonna force you to do anything. I mean, sure. not so it was a way to learn uh, to learn about things. So you were very open minded in an era where it wasn't cool to be open minded. I mean, you, you obviously you, you understood the whole ignorance of things like. Hey, I, I want to learn this stuff. I want to see what's going on out here in the communities and the lifestyles and things like that. Because Chris Colt was uh, quite an interesting character by by all accounts. It has nothing to do with with his uh, uh, sexual preference either. I mean, but uh, that's pretty cool. And you know, I do have that on my list of topics for sure. Because Chris Colt is an enigma in and of himself. So I'm looking forward to talking more in depth about him down the road. But I don't want to get too lost astray from this Pat McGinnis stuff here. No, I, I was just coming back to that. The sure. reason I told that about Chris. Mm-hmm. It's the same thing with McGinnis. I wanted to learn about that kind of life. I had just seen Rocky about, I don't know, a month or two before. And, you know, I've seen the kind of guy, the long shark, you know, the gunsole type guy. Yeah, bone breaker. Uh, yeah, bone breaker, you know. And I wanted to learn about that kind of uh, mentality. You know, I mean, what, what motivates these guys? What, what creates this kind of a person? And so, you know, it was interesting to me. And again, I didn't feel in any way threatened. Uh, when the guy brought the guy out, I was a booker, so he was I was his boss, and you know I could fire him. I mean I never have to see him again. And the other thing is, you know, he didn't have that dog, and he wasn't didn't have any weapons on him. I could handle him. If he didn't knock me out with the first punch, which he wasn't going to do, because I'm going to let him get close enough to do that, I would take him down and just eat him. I mean, I would do whatever I wanted with. I thought I wrestled guys that were. I mean, big, a uh, hundred pounds heavier, or solid muscle, great big weightlifter muscle. Ole Anderson used to, as a rib, used to get the t- the biggest, strongest guys you could find to give a tryout, and I got to be the one to go try out with them. I didn't, I didn't mind, except for the fact that it's almost impossible not to get hurt somehow, even if it's just <laughs> you know, uh, pulling a muscle or something. But anyway, so I wasn't worried about, I wasn't worried about that part. And plus, McGinnis, his social graces were. There, I mean, they weren't. He wasn't Mister Laugh a Minute type guy, but, but you know, he was appropriate and everything. And you no, know, I mean, I was, I didn't look it, but I was a tough guy too. You know, I didn't break people's arms and legs. I could, 
but uh, I didn't want to. Now, if he did that for a living, well, I wanted to find out more about that. Now, I wasn't going to room with the guy. He stayed with me a couple of days, and Kevin put him, got him a room or something. He was he he was an interesting guy, but oh, he, he was a nightmare at times. But I got to share the nightmare. The nightmare for me was absolute horror for Roy Shire. But McGinnis would do things like. I had him in a match against Kevin on TV, and he was—I made him like my gunsel, my personal gunsel. He—I was making Kevin wrestle these other guys in order before he could get a match with me. He had to beat these other people, and McGinnis was one of them. And we're on TV, and uh, all he's supposed to do is—I'm—I'm I'm, I'm in the wings. I'm about 20 feet away. I'm off camera, and the studio audience couldn't see me. But I, there was nothing between me and the ring. It wasn't like glass or a wall or anything. But I can see what's going on. And I told McGinnis was, uh, that he had Kevin tied in the ropes. I went out and I slid a chair in the ring. And then I went back and hid behind the, the curtain again. So uh, McGinnis picked up the chair. He all he, had, all he had to do was go forward and whack Kevin. That's all he had to do. What was going to happen was before he got to whack him, Kevin was going to get free of the ropes and smack him and take the chair and run him out of there. And then Kevin would have the, the, have the impetus for a great promo he was going to make about, you saw, I just saw Bob Rupert come out here and, and hand McGinnis' chair to try to cripple me where I was trying to avoid him again by putting other guys in or running interference for me. So McGinnis does everything's great, gets tied to the ropes, slides the chair, and he picks the chair up. I'm watching from the wings. I'm going, oh, oh, wow. He's going to do it. It's going to be great. He raises the chair up high overhead. He's got his arms, you know, straight out. The chair's about, oh, no, seven, eight feet in the air. And he just stops. He's facing Kevin. <laughs> Kevin's tied in the ropes. The referee's doing something. And he just stops. And, and he, 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 looks, he looks around a little bit, and then he looks over at me. And I, I'm making the motion like, I make him move my arms like I'm holding a chair, like hit him, hit him. Kevin, you know, was tied in the ropes, but I mean, he's not tied in there like with steel cables and right. chained to him. You know, he can't stay in there forever and keep his credibility. And I'm telling you, when those seconds are taken by like that, each second seems like a minute long because it just, you know, you're seeing it the way this thing was going to work. He has to do it now. He can't, can't be three seconds from now. So Kevin had to get out of the ropes before McGinnis could ever even start to whack him. And he smacked McGinnis, and uh, I ran out there and grabbed McGinnis. Otherwise, McGinnis was going to stay out there and let Kevin whack him, I don't know, 50 times for all I knew. I had to get him out of there. But that was just a typical example of what I was dealing with, with McGinnis, of having these, uh, you know, I don't know, the, you go into another, another time, another dimension, the ozone somewhere. But his mind went somewhere. But see, that didn't that didn't have anywhere near the effect that it would have had if Kevin of McGinnis actually was on his way to smack him, and Kevin managed to get out. Well, Kevin was supposed to get out the last second, right. and McGinnis was going to whack the top of the top rope like it would have brained. I mean, it would have uh, crushed Kevin's skull if he'd have hit him with that metal chair. But Kevin was going to have an arm, one arm free, where he could duck down. And, and it hit the rope instead of him. And then he was going to get the arm free and smack McGinnis, and McGinnis was going to take off. But see, see, we didn't get to do that. We didn't have that one violent smack 
with a chair because McGinnis just, again, mine went somewhere. So Kevin couldn't have, didn't have the impetus for a great interview that he would have had. Pat did things like that, you know, and, and again, I, my, my, my memory of them are, is, I have fond memories of them because uh, it's a good story. You know, I mean, it wasn't the end of the end of the world that that didn't happen. You know, he was fine. I was okay in the ring. I mean, his, his matches were okay. Uh, nothing, nothing special. I, I, there wasn't any way to get him an angle with anybody. But he wasn't going to be out there that long anyway. I think he was only going to be. You needed to lay low for six weeks or something. Then if the the warrant ran out or whoever, whoever was looking <laughs> for him in Boston or whatever. Yeah, and, and another time, and I want to say Fresno. No, not Fresno. Salinas, one of the small towns. Another time, uh, I had I was wrestling Kevin. I said, "You're going to come in and smack him one time." I said, "As soon as you punch him, I'm going to slide out of the ring. You come join me right away. Out we go." I said, "You got to do that right away," because I knew this town. The people were sitting real close to the ring. I knew, and there was a bunch of people sitting right on the aisle where the heels went in and out. And I knew that if, if we gave him time to register what we'd done. We wouldn't get out of there without a, an incident. So, you know, everything's fine. The match goes great. Finally, uh, Kevin's about ready to beat me. McGinnis runs in there and stops him and whacks him. And then, so I said, come on, let's go. And I slide out and I get, I get like two steps and I don't hear anybody behind me. I look back. Well, when he whacked him, everybody, you know, every, what people were there in the building, I don't remember it being a great big crowd. It was a smaller town. There was a, you know, there was a heat. He got some serious heat. I look back, and he's looking. McGinnis is looking around. He felt this, this heat. He got this heat. Oh my God! They're yelling at me for me. It's at me. What? And he had to go back and whack him again. <laughs> and oh, I jumped in the ring. I said, "Come on!" I grabbed him by the air. Come on! It was too late. By the time we hit the floor, had a four or five old. And then you know the people waited for us. It wasn't like the Hell's Angels. It was like old men with canes. You know, they were they were waiting to whack us, and hopefully we'd knock them down. They'd come to, you know, they show up in court with a broken hip, broken neck. If they lived to be 500 and never have intimate relations with their wife again, all because you 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 hit them on the way out right. uh, of the wrestling match. So, uh, and you know, even if you lawsuits don't, they don't win. You have to pay an attorney. So you know, and you never can believe me. You can't even get an attorney <laughs> even back then less than a thousand bucks just to talk to you. Yeah, that was another one where, boy, when he heard the heat, when he got heat, it just was like, I'm telling you, it was like, a, I, I mean, I wouldn't know from experience, but I imagine just what a heroin addict feels when he gets that first hit. Like, like oh, euphoria? No. <laughs> yeah, like, oh, yeah. So this well, is heat. <laughs> I got to get some more of this. What, yeah, that's what heals want is heat, of course, and he didn't have I don't know if you've ever been in a position to have a ton of it. Uh, no, I don't know I, I if don't they believe ever... so. Again, like no, I it... said, they gave him the belt in Memphis, but you know how those rains go up there or down there, wherever you might live. It's, they're not very long. But, uh, yeah, he did come through there, and he went through a few other territories. But I'm not really seeing a whole lot in regards to him getting that major push to where he would have ever drawn any type of real heat. So I, I would imagine being involved in this angle is kind of – not your bounty hunter, not your bodyguard, but just kind of your your right hand man. Your pay, basically your hired hand, I should say. I guess your gunsel, as you as you call it. I, you know, he's in a good position. You guys are drawing twelve thousand at the Cow Palace. So even though he's working underneath you, he's still part of that storyline at this point. So 
he has a perfect opportunity. Sullivan's over as hell here as a top babyface. Yeah, I mean, McGinnis might have made a couple hundred bucks working uh, first or second match in a cop house. Probably second. Yeah, he might have made a couple hundred bucks or going out there for five, ten minutes. So, yeah, I was, uh, you know, he didn't make that much in all the places, but that was, Cal Palace was usually a fairly decent payoff. <laughs> First thing, uh, nobody in the law enforcement is looking for him out there in California. So, you know, that was one thing he didn't have to worry about. I think it was too hot for him back in Boston. One other time, we were in Fresno, and we talked about Barry Orton, Barry O, yes. uh, last week, and he and Barry had a match, and he was leaving. McGinnis was leaving. I think this was going to be one of his last, next to last matches. So when the guy's leaving, I mean, if Barry had been leaving, Barry would have been, I uh, would have beaten Barry in the match. But McGinnis is leaving. Barry's going to stay there. So Barry's going over in the match. So I got him in the dressing room, and I've got 10 things on my mind. I'm just going to give him a real simple finish. And so I'm looking, kind of looking in, in the space in between them. I've got them right in front of me. Both uh, They're separated by, say, two and a half, three feet. Barry on my right, McGinnis on my left. And I'm, I'm kind of looking between them. I said, why don't we do this? You blah, blah, blah. And I'm giving them a finish. And all of a sudden, I look up at Barry. I look, and Barry's got his mouth open. He's got both his hands up. And he's shaking his head back and forth like, no, like, no. And making these placating gestures with his hands like Frankenstein's about to <laughs> literally. <laughs> so I look at him, I think, what, what's his problem? <laughs> I see you, you don't seem to like to finish. I look at McGinnis. McGinnis is in the process of he's poking his big pecs, his big pectoral bad, his big chest muscles. Right. And he's looking, at, he's looking, and then he's looking real pointedly at Barry's chest, which is about a third the size of his. Then he's flexing, he's got his bicep flex, and he's poking that. He's looking at Barry's arm, and he's and he's like he's got this look on his face, like he, he'd like to eat Barry's arm. And you know, I, I had a hard time not laughing out loud. But I said, I said, Pat, Pat, cool it, man, cool it. He was he, what he was saying is that nobody's going to believe this kid can beat me. Is what he's saying, really. Right. Yeah, he couldn't believe it himself. I said, well, Pat, I'm not going to have him go out there and make you give up on the handshake. You know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not going to, he's not going to overpower you. You know, you're going to try to screw him and beating him in the finish. He's going to end up doing the same thing to you. Plus, you're going to trip over the referee. So, I mean, believe me, you got an out. But uh, Burry was looking at having to go. Plus, they were all scared of McGinnis anyway. Uh, Shire <laughs> was coming to the matches at that time. Shire, by that time, Shire, when he came to the matches, was going to the dressing room as far away from us as he could get. And on the counter next to wherever he was sitting in one of those star-turned dressing rooms, he had his pistol out laying right on the counter. That's how nervous he was about maybe Pat McGinnis coming to see him. So I'm so, assuming uh, Pat did the job there, though, without any further issue. Yeah, yeah. And because he, he just he didn't, he didn't understand the business, you know. Right, sure. Uh, if I'd asked him, first of all, if I'd asked him to let Barry smash him, Give him a pile driver and beat him. I mean, he should have done it. I mean, it's a work. Right. You know, this is real. You know, I, <laughs> Pat might be real to you, but, you know, <laughs> uh, other guys, you think anybody in real life would get in a ring with you? So yeah, out of your you, mind. You had referenced uh, Pat McGinnis had, taking issue or having some sort of altercations with Roy Shire. Does that take place while he's in the territory or does that take place later down the road? Yes. Okay. 
Well, the altercation uh, might have been facilitated by somebody whose name rhymes with Gob Boop. Oh, might have wow. said something to McGinnis. Roy Shire had a habit of uh, stiffing guys. What did he do is he paid, he paid two weeks behind so that when you left, he owed you two weeks. The last two weeks you worked, he still hadn't paid you for. And a lot of guys he wouldn't pay. And the way the, the way the business worked, I mean, if God did that to me, I'd never, I'd never come back there. You know, I had alternatives in my life, so I didn't have to do pro wrestling. Guys that whose choice of making good money is pro wrestling, or they're pumping gas and, or you know, they're working menial jobs where they don't have anywhere near the money or the life for that matter. The, you know, they they want to be able to always come back to a place. So if they want to come back to California a year or two later, they're not going to call Roy up and say, "Hey, you owe me those two weeks' pay." Uh, you know, he he just Roy. That's see, that's one of the reasons when I talked about not having respect for the guy in a past show, Any anybody out there who's offended by that, um, you're going to hear more when we start talking about his, his associate promoters right. and how they felt about it. But things like that. So I told McGinnis about that. I told him early on because I, I needed a way. Roy didn't come anywhere near McGinnis, especially after I told him McGinnis uh, might be thinking about killing him. What happened was um, I, I needed a way to keep Shire away from me. Because he, he would come in and it just upset the whole ambiance. We had a great time when he wasn't around. The boys were all happy. We were all making money. Uh, be, like I said, beautiful territory, short trips. Guys got along. I mean, you know, I didn't play any favorites. We were, you know, everybody was respected and treated decently. It didn't matter if you were a main event or opening match. It didn't matter. You're all given respect and treated you all necessary. Guys put up the ring, they're necessary. You better be good to them. They're more necessary than anybody else, really. But uh, it was good. And Shire would come around and walk around and strut around and everything. Uh, and even though the guys didn't have to listen to him, uh, he didn't, and he didn't know how to make social talk and go up and say, hey, how's it going? Uh, if he couldn't yell at a guy or, you know, try to show I'm the boss and you're the slave, uh, you know, he didn't know how to have a... So he, But he was just his gloom to him attitude and it just put a kind of a pall. I wanted to keep him away. I mean, so I figured a way to do it was uh, I told McGinnis that early on when I knew he, I think he gave me, when he gave me uh, maybe a month's notice, maybe a month and a half, like I'm going to be out of here in six weeks. I think he had found out it was going to be safe for him to go back in six weeks and go back and the, the, by the time the heat would have died back whatever whatever he did back east or maybe his dog had digested that last face he ate. But <laughs> um, so I told him, I said, now, one thing you gotta, you gotta look out for Pat is that Shire has a tendency to, uh, to, uh, not pay guys, you know, that he, how we always get paid a couple weeks behind. I said, when you leave here, you know, there's a chance he might not pay you. That's probably the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we were in a place I knew Roy could hear me. They had dressing rooms that had no, that had no roof, no ceiling. You know, they were right. They had doors that shut so you could have privacy. But uh, they, you know, it was like a theater type of arena we were in. McGinnis said, Well, and if I not steal from me, he says, I make a living out of making other guys pay what they owe my boss. If somebody owes me money, I'll kill him if I have to to get the money. Wow. And uh, <laughs> I, I knew, I knew 
Shower heard that. I knew he heard it because I didn't see him. I didn't see him the rest of the night. So, yeah, when he'd come to shows, he would sit sometimes a couple of floors up in a place that had three or four stories. He's behind the, the stage. He sit he sit out in the way out in the wing somewhere. So and it was a, it was a good way not to have him around. Uh, and, <laughs> Imagine that the promoter fears a, a, a preliminary guy, to, for lack of a better term, because of his his shoot life. <laughs> yeah, and of course Shar was on. There. He said, "Well, you know, what's his problem?" I said, "Well, yeah, I don't know. He heard from somebody that you, you know, you step guys. You it's know, probably from that Star you know. Warrior." <laughs> yeah, probably was that guy. You couldn't trust him. The guy wore a mask to hide his face. Oh my God! Yeah, so I said, I don't know how, where he heard him, but yeah, apparently thinks you're going to step him. Well, God, the showers always everything was oh God, blah blah blah. He said, Well, fire his ass. I said, Well, I no. I said, I don't want to. For one thing, I mean, I he's over a little bit. People believe he's a nut job, and you know, because he is. Uh, I said, I, you know, he's, do, he's doing good. Why get rid of him? I said, before you go any further, Roy, I said, you know, I'm in charge of the talent. I, you know, I don't need to fire him. What, what are you worried about? I mean, are you going to do something to him? Are you going to want to kill you? You know, treat him right. You won't have a problem. Well, Shares, he knew he was going to screw him. <laughs> and so, yeah, he, you know, he kept, he told me two or three times, you fire his ass. I said, I can't do it, Roy. I said, you know, I, I'm, I, that's, that's one of the reasons I had him involved with the angle with me and Kevin, but because that gave McGinnis more than just being like a like a preliminary guy there, just to, you know, you're interchangeable. Right. Uh, if it had been just that, I could have replaced him just with no problem if, if Shard had insisted, but I said no, because Shard didn't know what I had planned. All he knew that whatever I had planned that we had done so far, or what we had planned, I mean, all of us, Kevin and Schmidtoff and Dean, whoever, whoever came up with ideas, all of us together, what we had planned, he didn't know how that was going to go, but what he knew was that what we'd done so far was going well, and it looked like it was going to continue to do that way. So, you know, he didn't want to, you know, kill the golden goose, and so uh, when I told him, I said, well, you know, Pat's figured in to deal with Kevin. I said, he's going to be leaving in five, six weeks, I think, you know, so what what is the problem? What problem do you have with him? I said, he, I didn't hear him say anything about you, but you know, <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm going to assume I, McGinnis probably got his full pay because you, you never heard <laughs> from him again. Uh, and, and Roy Shire lived to, to continue to promote for a while. And then, you know, a few more years after that as well. So I'm going to assume Pat McGinnis got paid in full there. Uh, I'm sure it killed Roy inside, but at least it didn't kill him literally. <laughs> yeah, he probably probably stiffed him. He probably didn't pay you him what so? he should. Think what he had. Oh, I didn't. I'm sure he paid him something. Yeah, because uh, I, you know, uh, McGinnis was just the kind of guy who might walk out to the West Coast to kill yeah. you well, if he, he felt like you stiffed him. I've I've only been able thus far to find one match involving Pat McGinnis. It's actually a tag team match from Florida, and the only reason I think it even exists is you know J Japan. They were amazing at, at preserving footage. Their, their 70s footage looks like high definition today. And there's actually a, a match that uh, I think it was Baba and maybe, I don't think it was Jumbo. It might have been Tenru, but a couple of guys went down there for a tag team match, and McGinnis was one of the opponents. I think he teamed actually with Angelo Poffo. Imagine that. Uh, but wow. that match was out there. So I just watched that this week, the McGinnis match, to get just to familiarize myself with them outside of what I've read. 
So there may be a clip or two of him in Memphis. I don't recall, but not a whole lot of him out there. So that's pretty cool. And Rock Rims also sent me a picture of you and McGinnis in Modesto together, probably after a matchup. You guys have your hands raised in unison there. So that was pretty cool, too. I actually went into my software and colorized it, and we'll be using that here on the show because it's just a pretty cool moment. It's like, wow. So, you know, as you tell these stories, some of the videos are out there. A few pictures are out there. So we can kind of bring these stories back to life as best we can, you know, them being well over, you know, 45 years ago. But uh, it's just been a blast thus far as we continue through this San Francisco trip, Bob. And we're uh, running long on time. So we're going to wrap it up here in just a couple minutes. But I just wanted to mention, we're about four months now into this feud with Kevin Sullivan. About two months left in this feud. Three big matches to go. We're going to touch on all of those next time. Run right through those. And we're going to get into the what everybody's really been dying. They're waiting for. Actually, I say that's going to happen next time. That'll actually happen in two weeks' time, guys. Because next time out, heading into Christmas... We're going to drop on December 20th, Ask Bob Anything, the episode upcoming, Bob. It's going to be a blast. Everybody have been sending in uh, tons of uh, emails and DMs asking various questions from all throughout your 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 history uh, as a wrestler and working behind the scenes as well. And guys, if you want to get those questions in, you better do so now. The deadline is December 17th. I'm going to zip it up that day. So if you want to get it in, email me at WrestleCopia at gmail.com. That's WrestleCopia at gmail.com or DM me on Twitter or Facebook. And the subject title in that email, please label it Ask Bob. And we will do our best to get everything on there. And whatever we don't, hey, it'll always be there for Ask Bob number two. So I'm looking forward to that. We're going to go all over the place. Well, uh, that all sounds really great, Ray. I tell you, I'm enjoying the heck out of this. One last thing before we go. Absolutely. Uh, again, about, you know, there's no worry about kayfabe. The business has been, they want to say exposed, but my philosophy in, in talking about this is that what goes on behind the scenes, what you see out front is staged, it's choreographed. I right. mean, not the, not everything, but the, the, the angles, the angle, they're all preconceived. What goes on behind the scenes isn't. That stuff that happens, like with McGinnis, I never thought McGinnis would be able to come and be able to <laughs> provide me with this kind of weapon against Shire. I had no idea. Or this entertainment. So, yeah, I mean, exactly. When you have when you have these things happen, to me, to honor the fans out there, uh, or who the people who paid my living or made helped me make my living all those years back, and still do. When I went to Charlotte last year, I got paid to be there. And the people that bought tickets to come to the convention, they helped pay me. So I'm when I'm talking to you, I want to tell I, I'm telling you, I want to tell you what was going on behind the scene because that was real, and it's a lot more interesting than what happened out in the ring. Right. What out happened out in the ring is all predictable. Uh, there's only so many finishers you can have, and you see them all. You just keep what happens to make them different. You see them with different people, but it's the same old stuff. Behind the scenes, that's different. It's not always the same. You got new stuff. You got stuff that happens only in uh, some of the stuff. I might have happened somewhere else, but I doubt it. I doubt if anybody else ever had, had Barry O and McGinnis together and <laughs> McGinnis uh, having Barry almost wet his pants, wet his wrestling tights before the match. <laughs> but, oh, I left out one thing. After, after Barry beat McGinnis in that match, yeah. do you think I got out of the ring quick in the Cow Palace after? Dumping a whole man Sullivan. Barry was out of that ring on the three and a half count. And one, two, three, by three and a half, 
he was halfway back up the aisle. <laughs> he, he wasn't going to give McGinnis a chance to get any payback. Yeah. I'm so glad you had a story with Barry because we talked about him a little bit last week. You bring him up this week, and he's going to play a pivotal part in a small part, I guess, but it becomes a much larger a piece to a puzzle here in this Kevin Sullivan feud. Is uh, Kevin going to wind up teaming with Barry Orton for a match? And now that Pat McGinnis has gone from the territory, maybe your next gunsel very well could be Barry O. We'll just have to wait and see next time around. But that's just a little teaser, guys, of what's to come as this feud will continue on all the way into the month of December. And then, of course, from there, we're going to talk all about the demise of your, I guess you could call it a relationship with Roy Shire. So all the good stuff still coming, guys, as we continue to sell the Cow Palace out month after month, at least 12,000 strong each and every time. And it's uh, it's amazing. And it, I totally buy it just based on the storylines alone. So. It's uh, It's been a blast thus far covering San Francisco. Probably likely a couple more episodes still to come here in the San Francisco territory before we tackle even bigger and I don't know if I want to call it better, but tons more different. great stories. Very different Diff- indeed. Different, yeah. But they're all good. I mean, they're not all positive, but they're good stories. Some of them, yeah. you know, have negative sides to them, but uh, they're interesting. I mean, again, me and Dick Slater getting into a fist fight well, actually, I had a blackjack, but uh, he was <laughs> stupid enough just to bring his fist. But, uh, like, you know, getting in a, in a bar in Knoxville. I mean, you know, I don't know if anybody even knows about that, except the guys that were there. You know, that's that's just interesting to me because it doesn't happen. You know, it doesn't happen out. You know, right. I, I didn't see anything that could happen out in real life. But uh, <laughs> Well, some of the things our, that happened behind the scenes, if you will, were far more interesting than maybe some of the things that even transpired in the ring. And that's really what, you know, what we're here for, for you to tell all of these stories that everybody saw this match or that match. Everybody saw the junkyard dog pin you flat in the middle of the ring. But it's all the stories going on that led up to that behind the scenes that just as equally intriguing to me and I'm sure to all the listeners out there as well. And that's, you know, that's what you know I, we're doing this, I think, for us to get everything out there just share not just your life story, but any any encounter you recall that happened. Let's share professional wrestling history, really, is what this is. It's bigger than just Bob Roop, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Of course. Of course. It is. And and I think that, um, you know, anybody who tunes into this show or comes to conventions or whatever, I think that you're owed, you know, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to talk to me. You don't have to come to anything I'm involved with if you don't want to hear you know, my my way of talking about things, that's fine. If you want to, uh, you know, believe that, okay, everything I saw was real and uh, that's you know, what you saw was what you got. But what you saw is, in many cases, much less interesting than how it got there, how you saw it, uh, how you were in a position to see it. And that's what I want to share. I feel like, I, I feel like fans deserve to know that because they know that, Russ, you know, wrestling, now, believe me, the wrestling is real. We're not trying to hurt each other, but when you get run into steel poles and get slammed and, uh, you know, get hit with chairs and all that, that's real. Uh, it does hurt sometimes, you know. Guys are not always real capable of stuff they do. So we got hurt. Every, I was sore for uh, 15 years. But, uh, <laughs> you, you know, we were trying to kill each other. My career wouldn't have lasted 15 days. <laughs> well, that's so, true. <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, First of all, I feel I have the right to share it, but I had to experience it. For every every 10 minutes I spent in the ring, I probably spent, oh, 10 hours on the road. So uh, all in all, so believe me, these stories, 
have been paid for in advance. <laughs> and I'm, now I'm sharing them with you. So I appreciate y'all. Uh, again, I appreciate anybody out there uh, who's listening to this. I appreciate you being there. Uh, I, I enjoy sharing my time and in a way sharing my life with you. I appreciate those of you who, uh, you know, post or whatever, but whether you do or not, that didn't matter. Uh, best wishes to you. You all stay well. All right, that's going to wrap us up here, guys. Uh, just a reminder once again to everybody, you guys can friend Bob Roop over at facebook.com slash poor Bob Roop. He's looking forward to hearing from you. You guys can also find me, follow me on Twitter. Well, now it's X. You guys can find me there at Wrestling Grenade. That's at R-E-S-S-L-I-N Grenade. And once again, it has been the wrestling stoop of the legend himself, Bob Roop. Bob, I want to thank you again for allowing me to join you here on this awesome voyage. Well, thank you, Ray. We're actually in... You think about it, my friend. I couldn't do it without you. We're in this together, and I'm really happy about that. Uh, you're my newest tag team partner, and I'm really enjoying our, our linking up, my friend. Thanks a lot. Well, I'll take that any day. Tag team partners with Bob Roop. All right, guys, we'll see you again next week when it's Ask Bob Anything. Dropping December 20th. Be sure to check back then for another edition of the Wrestling Stoop. <laughs>